0: You have any homosexual experiences? I guess you had.
1: Ever wonder what life inside a prison for the criminally insane is like? You're about to find out. In this episode of The Drunk Projectionist, we spend a whole bunch of time with Frederick Wiseman, the director of Titty Cut Follies. As a law professor in the 1960s, Wiseman took classes on tours of the State Prison for the Criminally Insane in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. When he quit teaching to pursue filmmaking, Wiseman secured permission to take a camera inside Bridgewater. He spent weeks there documenting the lives of prisoners, guards, and psychiatrists. He also filmed a prison variety show called Titty Cut Follies. In the variety show, inmates and prison staff sing and dance for an invited audience. After its release, the state of Massachusetts sued Wiseman to prevent the film's distribution. Eventually, Wiseman won. Now, 50 years later, T.D. Cat Follies is widely considered essential viewing. It's unflinching, and it launched the Wiseman style of filmmaking. His documentaries, he's made more than 35 films in 50 years, differ from his peers. Wiseman never interviews anyone. He doesn't add music, he doesn't restage events, He doesn't even identify people or places shown on the screen. Nope. The viewer is simply immersed into a world. Up next, Frederick Wiseman, documentary legend, talking titty-cut follies. This is The Drunk Projectionist. The movie shows the
0: day-to-day life uh, at the prison for the criminally insane. Somersault, come here. Richard. Come here, Richard. Over here. Many of the people there had committed the most horrible crimes imaginable. Some had committed no crimes and were simply transferred there from state mental hospitals because they were thought to be behavior problems. They were essentially, the inmates were essentially, uh, they just lived there and they had nothing to do. They had their meals and there weren't no activities. They They passed their time watching television, exercising in the yard. Many of them were very heavily sedated with Thorazine. Which was the drug of choice at the time, and the building that they uh, they were housed in uh, was uh, had been built as a hospital during the American Civil War, so it was a hundred years old, and and uh, a lot of the facilities hadn't changed since
1: it was originally constructed. So the movie starts with uh, the fallings.
0: Every year the staff at Bridgewater and the inmates uh, put on an inmate staff variety show called Tittycut Follies. The name Titicut is an old Indian name for the street where the prison was located. On hey, One of the guards had an Ed Sullivan uh, fantasy life and he was the master of ceremonies and organized the show and uh, the the inmates put on various skits uh, and the movie is organized around uh, the show but instead of the skits the inmates put on you see uh, scenes from
1: the daily life of uh, the inmates. So the viewer sees the follies and then the viewer sees the reality of, of what's happening. Exactly. did that occur to you as you were filming that you were gonna go go with that method or well,
0: as soon as I saw the variety show it occurred to me that that was a possible structure although I wasn't sure that I would do that and I I'm never sure till I get well along in the editing uh, as I progressed in the editing I, I thought that
1: would be a, a good structure what was the most emotionally powerful scene for you well well I mean I, I still remember my first
0: visit to Bridgewater I mean, it, it's quite a shock to see human beings kept in that, in the conditions under which the inmates at Pritoria lived. Even recognizing that they, many of them, had committed outrageous crimes, and that some of them had committed no crimes at all, I, I couldn't get over that. Uh, we as citizens of Massachusetts or citizens anywhere could tolerate, could allow uh, others to be uh, kept in those under those circumstances, because I mean, it, it, it,
1: uh, the, the the people were completely dehumanized. People were also dehumanized in in what would seem to be small ways. And I, as I watched the movie, I thought about Jim and when they were shaving him, and they just started hassling him about him cleaning his cell. Jim was a man who was kept naked in the cell
0: for 17 years. The only reason he was kept naked, I mean, the, the announced reason was that he was suicidal. The actual reason was housekeeping, because there was absolutely no reason that he couldn't have been given a paper suit.
2: How's that room gonna be tomorrow, Jim? How's that room gonna be tomorrow, Jim? Hey, how's the room be? Very neat, very clean. How come it's not clean today? You told me that yesterday. What happened? Hmm? How come you
0: rip all your clothes up? The guards were bored out of their minds. They they had to lead Jim out of his cell, I think, a couple times a week to shave him and give him a shower. And they had this little game with him where... uh, they knew if they said to him a few times, You're gonna keep your cell clean, Jim, that he would burst into a rage. What'd you say, Jim? How's that room gonna be tomorrow? Great right, race. Right. Huh? Spick and span, very right, clean. What? Real clean, Jim? Yesterday! Huh? What are you doing, Jim? Good morning, Jim. Good morning. How's that room
2: gonna be tomorrow? Great, best of mornings.
0: Huh? What? What'd you say? I you here, clean. Oh, well, Jim. Tonight. What? Tonight. What'd you say? Can't hear you, Jim. Or you. Hide it, Jim. And so they did that to amuse themselves. They they said, "You're going to keep your cell clean, Jim," and he had a tortured expression on his face and and responded, "I'm going to keep my cell clean, goddammit. damn it!" You know, and they were just amused by seeing this uh, naked man uh, furious and. Um, Uh, because of his circumstances, not being able to do anything about his condition. I mean, I thought actually the guards at Bridgewater were more tuned in to the the needs of the inmates than the so-called middle-class helping professionals because the guards, in their own rough and ready way, had to deal with the inmates on a daily basis. The guards were poorly paid, poorly educated. Many of them had taken jobs at Bridgewater as a consequence of the recession of 1948. By taking a job at Bridgewater, they were, in a sense, voluntarily committing themselves to to, uh, be, uh, at Bridgewater eight hours a day or 40 hours a week, and it, it's not an easy job. What about the, the middle-class professionals? Why do you damn them more? Well, the middle-class professionals use psychiatric and social work language in a very cruel fashion. Uh, they they seem to feel that they were saying something significant. Uh, when they picked up the microphone after a case conference to dictate their notes and, and say paranoid schizophrenic and up the up the, uh, up the dose of uh, antidepressants. The, the treatment they offered was ineffective as far as I could see recommended no group activities they didn't take part in any protests. It was a job that they performed mechanically dully and uh, routinely i guess i expected at least that because of their medical training or so-called medical training they would
1: be a bit more sensitive there was less excuse for them to act verbally cruelly than the guards one of the scenes i really liked in the movie was uh, vladimir and his 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 case uh yeah, well, review vladimir, uh, vladimir the sequences
0: with vladimir particularly the case conference with vladimir is the, in my point of view, the key sequence in the movie. Just a bit of background on Vladimir. He was uh, born in, in Poland. He, he was in an American DP camp in Germany for a couple of years when he was very young. A- immediately after the war, he came to America when he was 16. He obviously didn't speak English in the beginning. His sister, who was older, had a boyfriend. The boyfriend uh, asked Vladimir to drive a car and the boyfriend held up a variety store and killed the owner. And under the Massachusetts felony murder rule, Vladimir was as guilty as the man who killed the uh, store owner. And he was sentenced, I've forgotten, 15 or 20 years at at, uh, Walpole, which was the maximum security prison in Massachusetts. And after he'd been there about 10 years, he began having dreams that his coffee was poisoned and there were German soldiers buried around Walpole. He was transferred to Bridgewater, and he'd been at Bridgewater a year and a half when I came across him for the movie. In the scene, the critical scene in the movie, he's appearing before a panel of psychiatrists, and he says to the psychiatrist,
2: and what, what sort of treatment uh, do I get down there? There are a hundred patients who are walking back and forth who, uh, who, are, who are obviously doing me harm.
0: Are you working here, Willard?
2: No, there was, uh, there was no suitable work for me here. All I've got is, uh, all I've got is the kitchen, and uh, all I do is up uh, cups on. Uh, uh, in fact, it's noisy. You've got two television sets, which are blaring, uh, machines, which are gone. Uh, 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 everything which is against the mind. There's one thing uh, uh, that a patient does need, and this is uh, what I do know absolutely, is, uh, is quiet if I have a mental problem or even an emotional problem. Yeah, you know, I'm thrown in with over a hundred of All I do is yell, walk around, television's a blaring. So that's doing my mind harm. Are you involved in any sports here? There are no sports here. All I've got is a baseball uh, and, a, and, a, and a glove and that's it. So there was nothing else. Uh, back at the other place, I, I have all the facilities to improve myself. I have the gym, I have the uh, school, I have uh, all kinds of uh, uh, anything I want.
0: He, he's basically asking to be transferred from Bridgewater back to the maximum security prison. And first, the social worker says, Oh, he argues in a perfect paranoid pattern. If you accept his basic premise, the rest follows, but without any recognition that his, his basic premise. Which is his critique of Bridgewater is accurate. I am
2: getting harmed. I say I'm getting harmed. You tell me that until I show some improvement. Yet each time you said until I show some improvement, I have been getting worse. Medication is harming me. Uh, th- Thank you, Barbara. No, no, uh, I'm. Okay. Gonna, uh, just like that.
0: I guess the movie asks the question: asks the question, what we what is our responsibility as citizens? And Vladimir was in that situation because he was poor; he didn't have a, a access to um, the kind of medical or legal services a, a middle-class person or upper-class person might have had. And I compare it to there was a case of a young woman who, a few years later, murdered her boyfriend and cut his penis off and sent it by FedEx to his mother in Rio. But she had, and obviously the the boyfriend died, but she had one of the best lawyer trial, criminal defense lawyers in in Boston. Uh, She had access to really good psychiatrists. She was sentenced to uh, be an inpatient at a Harvard psychiatric facility. She spent a number of years there as an inpatient. Then she was allowed to be an outpatient, and after and, and took a job. And after she'd been there for a period of time, I've forgotten seven or eight years, maybe, she was released. Uh, it, it didn't do much good for the family of the boy who'd been murdered, but the successful effort made to re- rehabilitate her. And Vladimir, uh, I'm assuming. Uh, if he'd had access to similar kind of services,
1: might have also been uh, rehabilitated. But in the movie, you don't give us any of Vladimir's backstory, because that's... uh, No, that's one of the limitations of a documentary movie,
0: because I can only get a backstory if somebody says it. I, I never ask, I don't do any interviews. Uh, I got the backstory because in the uh, trial connected with the Cat Follies, we subpoenaed all the medical records of the inmates who were in the movie, and the state was so
1: careful about those records that I still have them, which is now uh, 50 years later. Yeah, so just to be clear for people who haven't seen the movie or may have forgotten, there are no title explainers, so we don't see anybody's name on the screen. No, the, the, in, in, well, no, the, the, the technique I used in that movie,
0: which was my first documentary and I've subsequently used in the movies that I've made, is that there's no narration, um, and no added music, nothing is staged, and I don't really... Start the movie. I have no idea what the structure or the point of view of the movie is going to be in advance. I figure it all figured out in the editing. So the movie is created in this extent. Uh, it's in the editing. It's the reverse of a fiction movie. In a fiction movie, you write the script and shoot the movie. Although you may make some changes during the shooting, but in the kind of movies I make, it just accumulate a lot of material.
1: And figure it out in the editing but lots of documentaries today that i don't like i feel like the you know the the makers hit me over the head with the message and i i did not feel that with titty cut follies because i felt like i was there in the hospital with the men the idea of this
0: technique when it works is to to eliminate the barrier between the viewer and the event so it's my job as the editor of the film to provide the viewer with enough information so they can understand what's going on. But you, when it works, you feel like you're physically present. And if, if it works, you, you, you feel like you understand what's happening. And it, 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 it's, uh, the effort is not to be condescending toward the audience by telling them what to think or how they should think, uh, but rather providing enough information so they can make up their own minds what's going on. Uh, I made a movie about a high school after Titty Got Follies, because I thought that would high school was a good sequel to a Prison for the Criminal Insane. Uh,
1: <laughs> and it was actually called High School. Uh, it was called
0: High School. Uh, it was shown. It was about a high school in Philadelphia, but it was shown in Boston, and uh, a very conservative member of the Boston school committee came to see the movie. And the movie is, 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 I think, quite funny, but it's sort of a sad comedy in, in its own indirect way. It's quite critical of the high school. And this woman from the Boston City Council was very interested in education. She saw the movie, and she said to me afterwards, Mr. Wiseman, that's a wonderful movie. I wish you could tell me how we can get really good schools like that in Boston. And, you know, And I didn't take that as a critique of the film.
2: Uh, I didn't think
0: I'd failed, it's, she, it's just that she was on the other side of all the value issues. What I thought was funny or absurd and, and demeaning and condescending, she thought was the appropriate way to treat teenagers. But I mean, I'm not the first person to discover that reality is complicated and, and, uh, and confusing and, uh, and people can have you know, very different reactions to the same event depending on what their
1: values are. I think that goes to the long scenes without cuts also. Actually, there, there are very few long scenes without cuts.
0: Maybe a few in The Follies, but in most of the movies, there are long scenes,
1: but they're not long takes. Okay, fair enough. So long scenes, there's in Titty Cut Follies, the one where I felt like I was in the hospital and I couldn't get out was the guy that was super loud and raging at everything.
0: I want all those men arrested. Binidigar immediately for Binidigar from 168 pounds now down to 96 pounds. Abenigi and all those known. Binidigar, the deputy Führer and all those known. John F. Powers, Binidigar, Volpe, Charles Gaum, Binidigar, deputy Führer and Führer all out. Go back to Von Braun, Binidigar and go all over the world. Binidigar. Contribute the Nazi party, but he got Israel, but he got Palestine. He, yeah, he had some kind of a fantasy that he was uh, both a religious leader and a political leader because he, he equated himself to uh, Caesar Borgia and, and uh, Lyndon Johnson and uh, other famous politicians. Right, but th- th- there's also a lot of gibberish. Oh, yeah, I mean, he keeps saying uh, his key word is Gah. And in fact, in the ballet that we're making in the Follies, there's a whole Biddleygar sequence. And a, a friend of mine, a poet of David Slabit, wrote a great poem
1: called Biddleygar. I wanted to talk to you about uh, the length of films. Your shortest film was High School, 75 minutes, and your longest was Near Death at 358 minutes. Right. So just two minutes short of six hours. Why the wide variety of length? Well, the the length of the film is determined by
0: the complexity uh, of the story. Uh, High school, I I felt I was able to figure out what I wanted to say about Northeast High and Philadelphia. and came out to 73 minutes, and near death, which is concerned with how decisions are made to stop treating... uh, People who were going to die anyway followed four people who were dying and uh, it required that length of time to, to tell, tell their story. So I, fortunately, PBS has been very generous with me and has always run my films at the length at which
1: I give them and they've all been shown on prime time. So did Near Death run? Uh, yeah, it ran through prime time, it started before and ended after prime time is not six hours no prime time is not six hours (laughs) (laughs) so there's a great Errol Morris essay in this book that's simply called Frederick Wiseman published by the Museum of Modern Art in New York and uh, Morris says this is he's talking about the length of your films and he says I however told Fred that it should have been longer and he's talking about near death I was serious for a Wiseman film to work it has to be long unendurably long intolerably long. <laughs> well, you yeah, know, Errol has a good uh, sense of humor. <laughs> huh. But you would argue that, that your movies are the length that they need to be. Well, naturally. I mean, I, I, you know, they, I, mean, I, I don't make them, I don't deliberately make them long. I'm,
0: the, the movie comes out, uh, I mean, I don't set out to make a movie of six hours or a movie of 73 minutes. I set out to make the best movie I can with the material I have. And it comes out at whatever
1: length it comes out. Are there terrific theater? I know you're a big theater fan, based on based on what Aaron Moore says in the same essay. Well, I, I you know I, I do I uh, I don't have so much
0: time anymore, but I, I always you know I've always, all my life I, my parents introduced me to theater when I was very young, and I've always gone to the theater a lot, and I have also directed some plays.
1: Okay, well let me just share with with uh, with folks what. Errol Morris also said about uh, you attending the London Film Festival in 1978. Uh, He wrote, Fred had little interest in watching other movies at the festival. Uh, He was interested in London theater and excited about the prospect of going to a play. I still believe, over 30 years later, that his movies uh, come from the theater. Is this true?
0: Well, I don't know if they come from the theater, but I I, I try to make... I work very hard on the structure, so I, I try to make a dramatic movie. I mean, it's a movie, and I think any movie should be dramatic. Uh, But I I work very hard to use the material I have to make an interesting story which has a beginning, and a middle, and an end. It may not have a beginning, a middle, and an end in a traditional sense, but it does in an abstract sense. I mean, I think any movie, when it works, whether it's mine or anybody else's, has to proceed on two tracks. There's a literal track, What's happening? Who says what to whom? How are people dressed, etc. And as an abstract track, what is being suggested by the literal events in the film? And the real movie exists in the relationship between the literal and the abstract.
1: What would be a good example of that using one of your films?
0: The beginning of Welfare, for example. There, there, there's uh, some shots of people being photographed. Okay, so the, the literal aspect of it is that you see that the welfare center requires people to be photographed because they for id cards okay but when you're seeing the people being photographed you're seeing people uh, of different races different ethnicities uh, and that in turn plays against the cliche i mean i made that movie i think in 1973 1973 the the uh the cliché about welfare recipients is they were all black or Hispanic, uh, when in fact, the majority of welfare recipients were white. So in showing the faces, nominally uh, as part of a routine uh, requirement uh, for ID photos, you immediately, or I immediately made the point that uh, you see people of all different
1: ethnicities and and races uh, requesting welfare and not not all of your movies focus on social social matter or some of it focuses no. on ar- artistic matter all of life yeah well I, I i'm trying to do as many different subjects as
0: possible and so i i made i made a movie about uh, the Comédie Française, which is you know, a theater company which existed for over 300 years. I made uh, I made three dance movies, the American Ballet Theater, the Paris Opera Ballet, and The Crazy Horse, which is a nightclub in Paris. And I think Boxing Gym, uh, which is a movie about a boxing gym in Austin, Texas, is in a sense a dance
1: movie because it's all, it's all about movement. And I noticed that uh, in the credits to the Frederick Wiseman book, published by MoMA. Maybe it's not the credits. It was right after the filmography. There's also a list of uh, theater productions you've been involved with. You actually directed and acted in in Happy Days in Paris. I directed a production
0: of Beckett's play, uh, Happy Days. It was on a couple of times and the first time it was on, it was was done at the Comédie Française. One of the actors from the Comédie Française played Willie, and when it came back uh, Willie couldn't, uh, the actor who played Willie wasn't available, so the director of the comedy asked me to play Willie. So I had my acting debut at the Comedy francaise Française.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm very pleased about it. Uh, <laughs> so to explain Willie's character. You know, I, uh, I, I, I might actually enjoy ex- trying to explain Willie's character well, to, to the listener who hasn't uh, seen Happy Days. Uh, Happy Days is basically a monologue of a woman by the name of Winnie
0: where she recounts various aspects of her life, and she's married uh, to a man called Willie, and Willie is on stage the whole play and uh, and actually uh, I think he has 56 words but he has a lot of gestures and everything almost everything that Winnie says is directed toward Willie and uh, and and he's completely indifferent to her now Uh, so isn't
1: isn't, uh, Willie such a comfort to her doesn't she always say that well yeah yeah but he's not you see that you know while
0: she's talking about her need for comfort and 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 her distress Willie is reading the newspaper Right,
1: and sometimes maybe masturbating behind the hill?
0: Well th- th- that's a suggestion th- th- there was a production of Deborah Warner did it at the National Theater in London where you actually saw him masturbating I, I I thought
1: it worked much better as a suggestion. So why don't we talk about format, film format 36 of your films were done on 16mm, 2 were done on 35mm, no. and th- only one was done in 35 millimeter okay uh, only the last letter so
0: what do you like about 16 millimeter you can't shoot these kind of documentaries with a 35 millimeter camera because it's too heavy with, with a 16 mil camera you can you could shoot I mean you could have a bigger magazine but the mag, mag we always used you could shoot for 11 and a half minutes which was usually adequate because even if you ran out while something interesting interesting was going on the tape recorder you always had the sound for it and you could and you could change uh, you could change the magazine in about twenty seconds. In in thirty five, the, the, the magazine would have been you know would have been wildly heavy, coupled with the weight of the camera and the lenses. It, you know, it was it's impossible to do handheld uh, in thirty five for any length of time. Mean, you can do it for a moment, but for any length of time, and the quality of sixteen was quite good. You couldn't do it in a, on a sustained basis in thirty five. And then, uh, first movie that was completely shot digitally was um, Crazy Horse. Comedy Francaise, uh, not Comedy Francaise, uh, uh, Paris Opera Ballet was shot on film, but I edited it digitally. And
1: since then, uh, since Crazy Horse, all the films have been shot with a digital camera. When your films are screened today, would you prefer that they be screened in the original 16 millimeter, or is a digital transfer okay with you?
0: Well, I mean, I, I liked film, so I like the look of film. But, I mean, if the color grading holds up on the digital transfer, it, it's fine. I mean, a DCP is fine. What's next for you? Well, I just, in December, finished a movie about the New York Public Library called Ex Libris which is going to open in uh, New York on September 13th and open in France in the fall
1: and will ultimately be shown in America on PBS. And do you have any ideas for other new movies to shoot? Yeah, but I haven't settled on anything yet. What, what drives you? Why do you keep working? I like it. It's fun. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't find it a strain. It's interesting, and I don't know what else to do. keeps me off the street. Your expertise, your technical expertise, when, you're sh- when it comes time to make the movie is as the sound person. Yeah, I, I direct and I do the sound and then I edit the movies. Okay. And what's the interplay between you and the cinematographer?
0: Well, uh, we're, during the shooting we're constantly looking at each other and we have signals that we use for different kinds of shots. And I'm leading him with the mic. And
1: who, who are your cinematic influences?
0: Oh, the usual villains, uh, you know, mainly fiction film uh, makers, not so much documentary makers. Uh, And documentary, the documentary, I mean, I I like Errol Morris's movie, and I'm I'm also very, uh, I'm a great admirer of Marcel Ophuls, who works in a very different technique, and Errol works in a very different technique too, but Ophuls is made in in Hotel Terminus and The Sorrow and the Pity, two of the greatest movies ever made, and he, he, he's a brilliant interviewer, and uh, Hotel Terminus is about Klaus Barbie, and uh, Sorrow and the Pity is about the French
1: collaboration with the Germans during the war. What about the term cinema verite? Is that you? Uh, no, I mean, I, you know, i said it often. Uh, I mean, I just
0: uh, what I always say about it. It's a pompous French term. that has no meaning. Anybody that claims that their their movies are the truth, you, you know, you better run fast away from them.
1: Frederick Wiseman, thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. That was a pleasure. Frederick Wiseman on the podcast. Woo. I feel important now. I'm Todd Melby, and uh, this is The Drunk Projectionist. We've got more about Wiseman on the website and, of course, more about uh, Kelly Reichert, Barbara Koppel, and other people that we've interviewed. So check us out at thedrunkprojectionist.com. And also, if you're on social, and I'm sure you are, tell your friends about us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever your thing is. That would be fantastic. And in the meantime, keep us in your, your podcast mix. This is The Drunk Projectionist.